right, good morning, church. It's, it's good to be able to worship, brothers and sisters. Today we will continue on in our summer series that we had started a little while back on the worship of God and the singing life of the Christian church. So in the next few weeks, we are going to be unpacking how the church sings, the history of how the church sings, the importance of singing, but also all of this centered around the idea that Christians are to be worshipers of the living God. That's what we are. So today what I'd like to do as we start in on our topical message is like I'd first like to discuss with us the idea of what worship actually is. What do we mean when we talk about worshiping God as Christians? I think it's really important for us to come up with a definition and to understand what we're talking about when we as Christians say that we worship. in our society around us, when we talk about worship or we use the word worship, most people think that worship is for religious people, people who go to a church, they attend a temple, you know, or whatever it is that you do. There's religious people and there's non-religious people. If you're non-religious, you don't worship, but if you're religious, you go to your place of worship and you worship. In most people's minds, worship involves rituals or in some cases, in cultures like my Asian background, bowing down to an actual physical idol. Now, the truth is, no matter how you put it, I think that actually all people are worshipers in some fashion or another, whether or not they think so or believe that they are. There was an English professor, Professor uh, David uh, Foster Wallace, who was a very well-known writer, and one of his books actually made Time Magazine's top 100 books of the last uh, 20th century here. And in 2005, this professor gave a commencement speech to the graduates of Kenyon College about what he thought was the true value of education and how it's actually related to human worship. It's fascinating. He says this, speaking to the grad class. This, I submit, is the freedom of a real education. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because there's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get in life is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing, whether it be Jesus Christ or Allah or a Wiccan mother goddess or some sort of inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth, he says. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a a million deaths before they finally grieve you. 
Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. Now, I think Wallace as a professor nailed it. Secular professor. See, whatever you look to in life to derive your ultimate happiness and pleasure from is what you worship. So you don't have to be a churchgoer to worship. You just need to look to something to find your happiness in it. And as your happiness rises and falls on that thing, whether you will admit it or not, you are worshiping it. What I'd like to do for us today, as we look through a number of texts of Scripture, is to paint for us a biblical foundation for what exactly worship is and how we as human beings were created by God to ultimately find our joy, our happiness, and our satisfaction. Yes, ultimately we were made to worship Him. And that is what it means to be human. So before we start, let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Father in heaven, I ask for your help today. God, we say that we gather here, God, to worship you. And if the, you are who the Bible says that you are, God, you alone, God, are worthy of the worship of every living creature on this planet. No one compares to you. No one is like you. No one is as infinitely powerful and wise and majestic and as beautiful as you. So I pray, Father, though I have written words today, I pray that it would be your scriptures, O oh God, that would speak to our hearts, O oh God, and settle, God, into us a deep sense, O oh God, that we were made for more. We were made to worship and that everything we throw our lives into that is not you, O oh God, is but a pale shadow and reflection of the greater worth, the greater value, the greater beauty, and the greater joy that can be found only in you. So Father, I pray that you would help us to see that today. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. How do we define the word worship? Worship is a tricky word simply because you cannot take a Bible and look for every single instance of the word worship, do a little word study, and cobble it together and come up with a definition. You will miss, if you go through the Bible, all sorts of things like bowing down, singing praises to God, fearing God with your heart. You'll miss all of that. That is all I think we understand a part of what it means to worship. When it comes to defining worship, I think it's a lot like actually trying to define what love is. See, love, even if you can't explain it or give a good dictionary definition for it when someone asks you, what exactly is love? It's actually intuitively easy to understand. Like, you might not be able to define it, but you can look at a couple that is in love, and you say, that couple is clearly in love. And you can look at other couples and say, that, cu that couple is clearly not in love, or they have lost their love without defining it. 
I think worship is somewhat like that. People intuitively have a sense of what worship is, even if it is difficult to define. Now, the more you try to press it for a definition, I think sometimes you lose something from it, and you actually make it harder to understand. And furthermore, worship, I think, is like love in the sense that it's not just something you say and that you do with your lips. So when you come to church and you sing songs, yes, I think that's a part of corporate worship, but worship is way more than that. It involves all of you. It encompasses your relationships, your affections, your thought life, your actions, everything, the totality of your being. Now, imagine like a a man about to marry a woman who is obviously in love, and yet he looks at his bride-to-be and says, this is how our love relationship is going to work. I will love you on Monday to Friday, outside of working hours. Saturdays will be mine. Sundays will be yours. I will share with you about 50% of my bank account, and we will negotiate between each other a fair settlement so that you take care of the children half the time, and I will take care of the children half the time. If you agree to these terms, sign here on the dotted line, and we're getting married because we love each other. (laughs) If you hear that from any individual proposing to you, ladies, I would advise you to run the other way. And the reason why you should is because you know intuitively, even though you can't define love, you know that's not love. That's lawyering. That's contract law. And everything in us laughs at and is repulsed by individuals who would reduce something as noble as love to a mere financial and commercial transaction. We're offended by that. But you know, if we were to examine our own hearts and look deep inside what we actually believe, I think that's actually the way that many of us treat God sometimes. We say to God in our negotiations, let's be clear about our relationship, God. I will love you and worship you on Sundays and make myself available to you in the evenings outside of the working hours, of course. I will share with you up to 10% of my bank account, no questions asked, and if you have work for me to do, I'm willing to do the work. If the amount of time you ask for me is fair and that you compensate me either financially or with good health, if that's it, I'll be a Christian and I agree to serve you. When you think about that, that's absolutely terrible. Any human lover that you attempted to do this with would be crushed and utterly dishonored by the words that you speak. And I think God is dishonored if we treat him this way. We might not say it with our words, but don't we all do this in our hearts sometimes to God? And of all people, is not God the individual who is worth our worship, our love, and our complete utmost affections more than any human being. You know, Don Carson in his book, Worship by the Book, gives a very helpful sentence to try to introduce the idea of what worship actually is. I like it. He says this, Worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy and delightfully so. 
Now, I think there are, that's a mouthful there. I think there are two important things to learn from that particular statement about what worship is, or else we will degenerate into some sort of commercial transaction. That's what we think it means to be a Christian. Number one, worship, he says in there, is about ascribing worth to worthy things. In other words, we don't praise what is not praiseworthy. So we praise God because He is worthy of our praise. So our hearts, I think, intuitively understand some things are worth being excited about and glorying in and showing to other people and inviting them to praise, and other things are not. You know, I was here on Friday meeting with the youth at the church, and as I was meeting, uh, we had a four-year-old who was around here and grabbed my attention to point out excitedly on the wall that there was a little bug or some sort of type of cricket on there. And I remember I looked at him and I thought, like, he really wants this cricket, you know? The only problem is that the cricket was about 10 feet high up the back wall there. And so as we looked around, Paul and I actually went and grabbed a ladder and we stuck it near the back there and I climbed to the top of that thing, balancing on the top rung, and I caught it with a cup and I slid a piece of paper behind it and then I walked to our nicely uh, cleaned up kitchen which has all these nice labels on there and there's one that says saran wrap on there. I'm like, I know exactly what I need. I walked up to saran wrap, I took it out and I wrapped up the top of it and poked an air hole for the cricket and I handed it to the four-year-old child. And as I did so, his eyes just lit up, and he excitedly took his cricket and shook it. I'm like, well, I, hopefully you don't kill it, right, you know, by doing that. But he was so happy with the little cricket, and he just wandered around with this particular cricket. He carried it around, really, for the rest of the night. And when, as I thought about it after, I sat for a while, and I thought, why was he so excited about the cricket? Now, you and I chuckle at that sort of thing, because if I were to go and catch a cricket in this church, even if it was a church cricket... And I gave it to you in a plastic cup. Very few of you would consider that to be a great gift from your pastor. And the question is, why? Why would you not be honored by me giving you a cricket? And the reason why is that you know that a plastic cup is worth about two cents. And that you being a clever, infinitely powerful adult when it comes to the cricket world could go and catch one of those things yourself anytime that you want. You could put it in your own cup, ten of them if you wanted, and look at them There's no sense of wonder, but to a four-year-old child, the idea of getting a ladder, climbing to the top of a church, chasing a cricket that moves faster than you, knowing that with all of your thinking, plotting, and scheming, you could never get the cricket on your own unless someone graciously gave it to you. You look at that gift and you say, that's amazing. And if you want to know how amazing it is, don't look to an adult. Look at another four-year-old child. You don't have to tell another four-year-old child, go look at his cricket and be amazed. The four-year-old will go up to the other four-year-old and say, what, can I get one too? Can I hold your cricket? That's so cool. I really like your cricket. Hey, everybody come around here. Let me look at the cricket. And so the child gives praise for this little created thing that is far beyond its ability to go and get for itself. Now, I share the cricket story simply because I think that's actually how you and I are, just we don't know it. Everything is relative in one sense. Lest we think that we're actually clever, we do the exact same thing in the world. We chase after money, food, sex, jobs, reputation in this world, chasing after the little crickets of this world. And we think, if only I catch this little cricket, it will make me happy. 
But it's really brutal in this world because you discover that so many things can go wrong with your cricket or your money. It can die. It can run away. You get old and you can't care for it anymore. And at the end of the day, what is it? I remember one of the privileges I have of being a pastor is going back to people, going to be with people in the hospitals days or moments before they die. Nobody has ever looked at me and said, Pastor, my one regret in life is I wished I had made more money. Pastor, if only I had taken more vacations and taken better care of myself. Pastor, if only I had built another business. When you're dying there, all of a sudden, these little crickets of the world that you chase that seem so important to your little four-year-old mind at the time, suddenly you realize none of them can save you at the end of the day. They're empty. You know, and it doesn't just have to be things like that. You know, people in Vancouver are outdoorsy, sporty. They will climb to the top of Grouse Mountain early in the morning, torturing themselves on that staircase only to see the sunrise. And it is marvelous. And they look at this massive ball of fire that comes out and they just, they love it. They look at this thing and say, wow, do you not see that? Isn't that amazing? It would be less than human for you if after getting to the top, you looked at that ball of fire and the beauty of a sunrise and you say, I feel nothing. He's like, what do you mean you feel nothing? You're a robot. Don't you see that? And the reason why people like you and me look at the sun, we glory in it and we say, that is marvelous and it stirs our souls because you and I can't go catch a sun and put it in our pocket. You look at that thing, how amazing it is, and you say, that is out of this world. There is something I can't explain, but it causes me to sing, to rejoice, and to feel happy when I look at it. And the truth of the matter is, for us as Christians, we say we know exactly why. Because that burning ball of fire in the sky there is the mark of our Creator's hand. He causes it to rise and He causes it to fall. It shows us His majestic power. Looking at that, we realize we are so small compared to Him. But the human tendency of our hearts, brothers and sisters, is always to worship the crickets or the balls of fire in the sky, the created things in this world, and to think that it is those things, the pursuit of those things, that make us happy. You know, God understood this when he was dealing with the Israelites. He said to them in Deuteronomy 4.19, And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, and you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. That's, that's the human problem. Nobody worships ants because they're very small and they're insignificant. But people were made to worship God, big things. And so they go and substitute in the place of God things like money, power, love, the sun, nature, environmentalism. It doesn't matter what it is. We go after these big substitute things in place of God. And yet we do an injustice to God by doing so. Of all the things we can compare God with, nothing come close, close to, comes close to Him. Doesn't the Bible tell us that God is the Alpha and the Omega? Doesn't it say that He is the one who created the heavens and the earth and all the things that are in it? 
You know the way that God describes his relationship to the oceans in Job chapter 38, verse 11? He says this to the waves, thus far you shall come and no further. Here shall your proud waves be stay. It's as if God talks to the roiling waters of the sea and he says, I tell you where you are to go and you obey me. You go to English Bay and talk to the water, I guarantee it won't obey you. But the Creator speaks, and the waters obey, whether it's in flood or they be still like the storm of the Sea of Galilee as Jesus got up of the boat and spoke. They obey Him. There is something fundamentally different about me and you and the God that we are commanded to worship. Besides me, says God, there is no Savior. This is the type of God that we Christians worship. And if only you could see him as he is, you would fall down at your feet and give him the praise and honor, which is the only, I think, proper response of the heart that he is due. Remember, I was talking about that bug in the cup. You know, we are so attracted to the other things that exist here in this world. I love, you know, one song that talks about how we have been saved by God and yet at the same time we wander through this world looking for earthly treasure even though we have a true treasure in Jesus Christ. That's the nature of our hearts. Prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Just a sheep looking for anything else to eat other than God. You know, the second thing that I wanted to point out in here, I think that goes with that, is that worship is the proper response to God. And the question we have to ask is, why don't we worship God naturally the way that He should be? And the answer to that is blindness. Not a blindness that you need to go see an optometrist for, but a spiritual blindness of the heart which causes us naturally to be unable to see true spiritual things. We don't see God as He is. We hear the truth about Jesus Christ, but unless our ears are open and our hearts are alive to Him, we will never appreciate the truth about the nature of our sins and the greatness of a Savior like Jesus Christ. We will be offended by that instead. There's a spiritual blackness that hangs over our eyes. You know, though the sun might be finding, shining full strength on a blind person, do you know what a blind person can never do? They can never have the experience of having one hint of those little golden rays streaming off the sun touch the retina that don't exist or are broken in their eyes and know what it's like to see light. You can shine the sun full strength in the face of a blind person and they will never see it. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. And so only when God opens our hearts through His Word and we see Him as He is, suddenly the light of Jesus Christ floods into our souls and we say, that is bright. And the only response then is worship to Him. See, and if you can't, see Him as He is. You can come to church, you can sing songs, you can pray Christian-type prayers, but 
but it won't mean anything at the end of the day if your heart is blind. You know, in the Old Testament, God's people were commanded to worship Him, and there was an outward ritual in how they did this. They slaughtered animals, and they burnt them, and as these offerings went up to God as a fragrant offering to Him, they were reminded every single day that one, the worship of God was expensive and not cheap, and the second thing was that the people of God were in need of forgiveness between them and God. Of all the things that people need, it's to be in right relationship with God, and the only way that happens is through sacrifice. But over time, what happened to the people of Israel and what happens to us as well is that we retain the outer form of worship, doing these empty things while the heart wanders away from God. And soon we as a people talk one way about the worship of God but live a completely different way. And so when that happened to the people of Israel, the prophet Amos spoke up and condemned them for their lives and their actions. He said in Amos 5.22, Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. And peace offerings of your fattened animals, I won't look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I won't listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You know, the worst thing that we can do is to think that we worship God by coming to gather with His people on a Sunday, singing praises to His name while our hearts are full of injustice or evil or they're just simply far from God. God is not fooled by these things. The point is, the worship of God certainly does take an outward form, but it cannot be simply reduced to an outward form. It's not acts in it of themselves that appease God. That's why David, after sinning with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, wrote and said this, the sacrifices of God are a burnt offering? No. They're a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. See, the true worship of God has always been firstly about the heart, and a heart that is full of God will always praise God and, and manifest itself in outward actions. The same way that a human being stands on a mountaintop and looks at the sun, feels the sun's warmth, and then finds themselves praising that and being entranced by his beauty, so also does the heart that sees God for who he is necessarily have to respond to him. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we see the exact same thing. And the language that is used to describe how New Testament believers are to worship is actually borrowed straight from the Old Testament. If you don't understand the pictures in the Old Testament, you will not understand what New Testament worship, what we as Christians are supposed to engage in. For example, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, Paul gives instructions about what is Christian worship. He says this, it's famous, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed, he says, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Question, what is spiritual worship in the New Testament? Look at how he talks, right? He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't be like the world, but be by transformed 
in the way that you think and live a life that gives honor to the Lord. See, the imagery is so powerful. See, with the Old Testament sacrificial system in mind, the New Testament believer who knows the Bible is supposed to think, how am I supposed to worship God? It's not primarily about me attending a service once a week and giving musical praise. No, 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 no. It's about me saying, today, God, I deny myself once again as Jesus Christ denied himself. I lay my plans, my hopes, and ambitions for this life down on the altar. And I let the knife be plunged into all my hopes and dreams. And I say, not my will, God, be done, but your will instead be done. Christ Jesus denied himself for my sake so that I could live. And it is my joy to be able to do the same thing. God, today I offer my work, my deeds, everything that I do from morning until night to be my spiritual worship to you. And just as the Israelites had two lambs that were sacrificed, one in the morning and another in the evening, which reminded the people that everything in the middle from the beginning to the end was lived by the forgiveness and the grace of God and for God, you and I are to be reminded as well that we live life every single day, not by two lambs slaughtered morning and evening that are done every day, but by the grace of the slaughtered lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Our spiritual worship that we offer up to him is the entirety of our being. That's the imagery that we have. That's how we worship. We see something actually very similar in Hebrews 13, verse 15, that says this, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Two things, again, similar about the worship of God. Firstly, that the sacrificial language is used once again. Instead of slaughtering an animal, the equivalent now, it says, is that our lips that give praise to God. Praise to Him. Praise through Him. Now, the hymn there is Jesus Christ. So one thing we need to understand in the New Testament is that we worship through the work and person of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate sacrifice. And as we do so and we sing praises to God, the fruit of our lips is an offering to Him. You know how sweet fruit is? The fragrance of a mango, a good apple, or the tastiness of an orange God says that the lives that we live as we sing praise to Him and we do deeds in the name of God, it's like tasty fruit. It's delicious. You don't need to be rich to be able to serve God or to give Him wonderful fruit. You just need to be able to give Him of yourself. This is so important for us to understand, believers. We praise God by offering Him the sacrifice of our lips, but we also, it says in this text, by doing good and sharing with others. You know, verse 16 tells us, do good. And when it says there, share, I want us to be really clear that sharing does not mean sharing the way that my children think about sharing. Four and five-year-olds, when you talk about sharing, they mean that I give you my toy for 15 minutes, hopefully you give me another toy to play with, and at the end of the day, I get my toy back. Sharing here in the New Testament does not mean I give to you so that you will hopefully give me back later. The sharing that he refers to here 
is the type of sharing that Jesus talks about in the Gospels. He talks about giving to those who will never be able to repay you, will never be able to acknowledge maybe what you have done for them. And when you do that and you give and you share, really it's giving, and you offer that to people, God says, you know what that actually is? When you give to people who cannot repay you, when you serve others in my name, that is a sacrifice. Why it's so meaningful to us as Christians, it means that some of the most mundane, ordinary activities in the world are redeemed in Christianity to be meaningful, powerful sacrifices that are actually pleasing to God. So when you go out and you serve the poor immigrants or your neighbor who cannot repay you because they don't have the language skills, they don't have the money, they can't do anything for you, and you do kind things for them, you are offering a daily sacrifice to God. When you take care of an elderly parent who doesn't even know your name or can't remember how many children that they have, you offer to God a pleasing sacrifice. When you change diapers and you chop vegetables after hour after hour in your home so that you can welcome a stranger in who needs to hear about Jesus, you are offering a sacrifice to God. When you host a birthday party for the lonely and the broken, you are worshiping God by offering Him sacrifices come from your heart. This is why the Apostle Paul could say, whatever you eat or you drink, do whatever that you do to the glory of God. Gone are the days of slaughtering animals that remind us of our need of forgiveness from God because the great lamb has already been slaughtered for us, Jesus Christ. And the way that we honor him is not by looking for new animals to slaughter, but by honoring that slaughtered lamb and living a life that is patterned and emulated after him. As Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ and show the world what it means to be a redeemed people who know their Savior and have been saved by him from the wrath of God. And Jesus told us right in Matthew chapter 25, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me in prison. Truly what you did for the least of these, you did to me. Brothers and sisters and friends sitting here, not a single one of you is too poor to sacrifice to God. Not a single one of you is too far from a church building to sacrifice to God. Not a single one of you has an excuse not to worship God. Every single one of us, by the way that we live and the way that we love and the way that we honor the Lord Jesus Christ, has the ability to worship God from Monday to Friday as well. Singing is just a part of a heart of worship. You know, this is so important, church, for us to understand. As a Christian, every portion of your life is meaningful. If you are at work suffering under a tyrannical, terrible boss, and you do not respond in kind and repay evil for evil, you're worshiping God by the way that you act. Your hearts and the words that you say that reflect Jesus Christ are a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. You are saying to people, by your wordless actions as you suffer, 
I value my Lord's calling over my life more than how I feel now. And what is more important to me now is to demonstrate Jesus than my own desire to lash out and to get back. When you are dying in a hospital bed and you speak of joy to the nurses and the people around you and say, my portion is not in this world, but it is with God. You communicate to people that there is more to this world than just the money, the wealth, and the happiness of the things that we have here that will soon disappear. And as you do that and you offer yourself up to be crushed as you are crushed, people are treated to an aroma, a special fragrance, a burnt offering that they can smell as they come near you and they say, what is that? And you say, the aroma that you smell is Jesus Christ who lives in me. You ever wonder why, church, it is important to be crossed as a Christian? It's, sometime, it's because sometimes you need to be crushed in order to let the fragrance of Jesus Christ be released to the world around you. You know, if you're not a Christian here, I just want to ask you a question. What are you worshiping in this world? Do you worship your good looks, your career, your ability to make money, your own intellect, your business, your family? And when those things are taken away from you, do you find yourself sunk into depression, unable to pull yourself out of that rut? All of those things are good things, but they are not ultimate things. And if you chase after those things, hear me, they will kill you in the end of the day, and you will never be able to take them with you. You were made to worship the true and the living God. So would you not come and be satisfied in Him? Would you not turn your life over to the one who made you, who commands all things and calls you to worship Him in spirit and in truth? For those of you who are Christians here at church, as we think about what it means to worship God later, especially as we talk about worshiping God in song, let us always remember this, that the worship of God does not begin on Sunday at 10 a.m. when we sing songs but begins throughout the course of our week as we offer up to God the worship of our very own lives. May the lives that we offer to God be true, fragrant offerings in the noses of unbelievers around us. You know, the problem with us being living sacrifices is that we have a habit of getting off the table. We get off when we wander away. The trick and the challenge of the Christian life is to say, God, today again, I deny myself and take up my cross. Would you do with me as you see fit and use me for your kingdom? Church, may that be our hope and our prayer, to live lives of worship so that when we sing, we sing as a response, a response we cannot help but give to the one who has saved and transformed our souls and whom we live for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are commanded to be a people of worship, a people who have been saved and transformed by your greatness and your goodness into the work and person of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray, God, that you would help us not chase the crickets of this world, even though, Father, they may look like amazing things like money and power and promise us all these empty things. We are just children, God, in relationship to these things. Help us, Father, not to be childish, God, in our thinking, but to be mature, 
thinking the things of God so that we might value God what is eternal and infinite, you. Father, would you help us, O oh God, to remember each day as we struggle to climb on the altar in Christian worship, to lay down our own desires and ambitions, O oh God, and to remember that there is no such thing as a meaningless day if we have you. Everything that we do, whether we eat or whether we drink, how we serve, whether seen or unseen, O oh God, is an act of spiritual worship to you, so long as we do it for the glory of God. So, Father, would you help us to be true worshipers of the living God? Lord, help us to see and savor Jesus Christ rightly. And may the world around us, as we are crushed, smell the sweet incense of our Christ and be led to a saving knowledge of him. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.